that selection. Would you join me in the epistle to Jude, the letter to Jude, and we shall read verses 22 through 25 in its conclusion. The letter to Jude, verses 22 through 25. Jude, verse 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even, even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. The term Gnosticism would not mean very much, or perhaps we would even know very little to us this morning, but most of us are probably more familiar with the opposite word, which is agnostic. The word has been coined by T.H. Huxley, who defined his own particular brand of unbelief and general hostility toward Christianity. We are often familiar with the use of the letter A as a means of forming a negative in a term. For example, the word muse, for instance, means to think. But if you put an A in front of it and we have a muse, it means don't think. The word millennium refers to the coming golden age when Christ will set up his kingdom on earth and reign. But put an A in front of the word, however, and we have come with a millennial, which means no millennial at all. The word agnostic, with which we are all acquainted, means we can't know, yet the word gnostic means we can know. The idea of Gnosticism somehow crept into the early church and created a havoc and a disappointment among many in terms of the teaching of the gospel. The Gnostics taught that people could only know certain esoteric truths However, there was a catch. Those who wish to know such secrets must come to them, the Gnostics, to learn the secrets or to be initiated unto what they called the mysteries. The Gnostics did not go to the Bible for knowledge. They were more familiar with pagan philosophers and ancient religious cults for the grounding of their teaching. What they taught were deep things of Satan. If we trace the secrets back far enough, we can actually find ourselves in the depths of what may be considered Nimrod's Babylon, where Nimrod propagated the mysteries of Babylon and a subtle and pervasive heresy that created a great deal of errors we now know. 
Yet they contended in the early church that in order to believe in God, they had to believe that Jesus could not have been God in the flesh. They contend that God, or Jesus should I say, would have been too holy to encompass God or that God would have been too holy to engulf himself in Jesus in human flesh and worked among men. Somehow they believed that the idea of the tribal God of Israel was a bit of a hostile deity. They contend that there is no way that God could save man. Instead, man must come up to be saved of God. I'm grateful that when I read the text, that's not what we get out of the New Testament. We get the idea that if it had not been, according to John chapter 1, God incarnating his son Jesus to come among men that we might know who God is, he would forever be an outward idea in the heavens and he could not identify with the pain to which I experienced. But because Jesus became flesh and dwelled among us, when the wine ran low at the wedding, he could feel the absence of the joy. When the woman at the well realized that she knew that she was not only out of the will of God, but yet she felt an emptiness that could be fulfilled by the man to whom she conversed, who was right there with her. In fact, his speaking to her caused her to run to town and say, come see a man who told me all about my troubles. Had it not been for God becoming flesh in Jesus, the man who sat by the pool for 30 and eight years would not have known what it meant to hear the words, take up thy bed and walk. But not just hearing them, he could experience Jesus right there in his presence, who extended unto him in the flesh what he could not have caught in the spirit. And yet, if it had not been for God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the man whose eyes were blind would have never witnessed nor experienced the idea of how God can actually heal using anything and everything. You talk about spittle and dirt, anointing the eyes of a man and sending him to the pool to wash away, and the man comes away seeing. I know that we can spiritually attune that that can happen in the mind, but think of how life-changing that was for that man to have Jesus take the dirt with his own hand, anoint it with his own spittle, and placed it on his own eyes and feel the hands of the Savior and listen to the reverberation of the voice, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. Even moving towards Siloam, he could have struggled with whether or not that actually could change his life. But there was something about the words, go wash in the pool of Siloam, that carried power and authority, that carried a sense of assurance. And in obedience, he goes and wash, and you know the rest of the story. He comes away from the pool seeing, and although there are others who raise questions about whether or not his incarnation is a reality the man can only say one thing I do not I do know whereas I was blind now I can see 
All I know that a man that is called Jesus touched my eyes and made me whole. Can I call one more witness? We would have never known the joy if Jesus had not been incarnate by God that Mary and Martha knew as they stood there. It's, it's good, brother. Don't, don't adjust it. It's good. As they stood there by the tomb and listened to Jesus called Lazarus by name. What would have happened if Jesus just simply said, get up and come forth? That meant that everybody born, not only with Lazarus, but born before Lazarus in that graveyard would have marched out of that tomb and marched toward the beat of Jesus' words. But yet, because they were able to there physically see that Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, as a result, they saw Lazarus come forth by personally being called of Jesus and they saw God do something that they had never seen before, loose him and let him go. In other words, if it had not been for the incarnation of God in Christ, we would have never seen God in the flesh. So the Gnostics are in error when they suggest that Jesus would have been too holy to incorporate himself among humankind. And I'm so glad that he allowed himself to do so because now when I feel pain, he knows how I feel. When I'm struggling, he knows what the struggle means. And when I lack joy, he knows what that means as well. When I cry, he knows what it means to cry. When I'm frustrated, he knows what it means to be frustrated. And when I have enemies all around me, he knows exactly what it means to have them. Jude wants to remind his listeners that no matter what the Gnostics said, you have to have an incarnate Christ to experience the salvation of God. I am overwhelmingly convinced as we came to the end of verse 20 and 21 that we had heard the final words that would come from Jude, constructive advice that he gives unto us. He says in verse 20 very clearly in the A clause that we ought to build our faith in the person of Christ which can be accomplished through the immersion of the word of God. I was convinced that he was speaking of saturating our life in the word of God to the point where you walk the word and you talk the word and you sleep the word and you dream the word and you breathe the word. Everything about your life becomes immersed in the word. What comes out of that is spiritual maturity where the writer in Psalm 1 says, you shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And because I'm so filled with the word, whatever I touch, it has to prosper. I'm convinced that in clause B that Jude tells us to commit ourselves to faithful praying in the direction of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. I am really convinced that when you are led by the Spirit, there is something powerful about being directed by the Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit is leading you, that you know that there's no misdirection in where God is trying to take you. I'm convinced that he is reminding us that the Spirit of God brings illumination when we are willing to be directed by the Spirit. In verse 21, clause A, he says, keep anticipating, or should I say, stay in the agape love that is the characteristic of God alone. Reminding us in clause A of verse 21 that in order to live out 
This idea of loving one another, it's a divine characteristic that cannot be acquired in the natural. In other words, you think about it. Do the average person loves their neighbor? Does the average person loves one that smites them on the cheek? Does the average person give whenever they're being taken away from? It takes this agape love, says Jude, to continue to walk in the fear of God. And he says, stay close to that because that's going to bring you through many dark situations. And then clause B of verse 21, he says, keep anticipating that soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Anticipate that there is going to be a great getting up morning when the troubles of this world will be put to rest. There's an eschatological language that Jude is portraying that encourages expectancy in seeing Jesus, in anticipating the provision of what he calls eternal life, glorification, being glorified in God, finally realizing that all of my work has not been in vain, but my living has been to acquire what has been promised, and that is life eternally. But out of that arises this spiritual, uh, Negro spiritual that I remember uh, entitled By and By that trumpets the same kind of anticipation in its troubled soul language. By and by, I'm going to lay down my heavy load and I know my robe's going to fit me well. I tried it on at the gates of hell. And oh, hell is deep and a dark despair but oh, stop, poor sinner, and don't you go to hell. There's a warning there that the person is saying that my life experiences has taught me enough to know that there is a difference between darkness and light. And where darkness is, you do not want to be. But where light is, is where you want to anticipate going. Coupled with the language of Paul Robeson, who lifts that grand old spiritual for us, going to lay down my burden down by the riverside to study war no more. Remember what he says? Lay down my sword and shield, put on my long right robe, put on my starry crown, and talk with the prince of peace. Down by the riverside ain't going to study war no more. There is in that clause B of verse 21 that anticipatory language that encourages and was intended to encourage those Christians to keep enduring, to keep pushing on because there's a bright side somewhere and don't you stop until you find it. But then in the middle of verse 21 and 22, I hear a shift in Jude's language. I hear him saying what I've entitled this sermon, there's one more thing I need to tell you. It's as if he said that I've taken you up to heaven's gates and to introduce you to the glory, at least in a temporary glimpse, but it's just a reminder once again to keep you informed that there is a bright side. But you now must come back to the world, to the real reality where there's work to be done 
Remember that story about Jesus and those three disciples who went up on the mount of what's called transfiguration? And while they are there, Peter says to Jesus and the rest, it is good for us to be here because there's a visitation from Moses and Elijah. And because they're in that euphoric moment, it is there when Peter says, Lord, let's build three tabernacles. In other words, live here and not go back to where we have come. And Jesus says, no, we can have this moment of a glimpse into glory temporarily, but we've got to go back down to the foot of the mountain where the real world is taking place and where we bring the kingdom of God to someone who stands in need of that life. But is that not what Sunday morning is all about? It's a moment of temporary glimpse for us to stop out of the rush of a difficult week, but to stop in a space where we get a cleanup by God and a fill up by God and a redirection by God and a touch by God, whether it comes through the sermon or it comes through the song or it comes through a prayer, it's where God refills us and restores our joy and restores our peace. And it's such a euphoric spiritual moment that he moves us from earth into glory just enough to get a glimpse of what's awaiting for us but then God has to bring us back down to reality where we got to go back into a real world but yet take that joy that we just got filled with and go help somebody else who knows nothing about the kingdom and yet they can see in your life somehow you have learned to handle the winds of adversity and we can share with them this joy that I have the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. The peace that I have doesn't come from what I have in the world, but it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's when you come into worship and you block out everybody else and you want to sit face to face with Jesus and you say, Lord, here I am. And Jesus ushers us into the presence of who the Father is. And oh, what happens when that joy bell starts moving and that wheel starts turning and we realize this is the day that the Lord has made and I'm going to rejoice and be glad and it here as the writer says in Paul Robeson's language where we sit down and talk with the Prince of Peace so that we can hear his voice say to the storm of our life peace be still and when you listen to his voice he has an amazing way of calming us down. Just a little talk with Jesus makes things right. Tell him all about your trouble. He will hear your cry and yet answer by and by. Feel a little prayer wheel turning. Know a little fire is burning. I feel a little talk with Jesus can make things all right. Jude says to them, you are going to need heaven's help. You're going to have to go up to glory and experience that from time to time, but you've got to come back down. And in verse 22 and 23, he says, I need you to come back down and not forget that you are going to be needed to assist those who are not as strong in the faith as you are. 
Some saints are targets for the fiery darts because they lack spiritual power. They lack believing faith. They lack, they demonstrate a weak disposition and they lack Bible in their soul. And they need you and I to help them along the way. Jude says in verse 22 that here's what I want you to do. Understand that God wants us to give mercy because we've been given mercy. Let me say that again. God wants us to give mercy because we have been given mercy. He points to the fact that the reality is there's little difference that exists between the emotional and the relational maturity between God's people in the house and the people who are outside the house. Notice, he says, when you pull back the facade of people in worship and people in the small group meeting and people who are actually walking through the valley of the shadow of death, their life is literally littered by brokenness and failure. They are in themselves wondering, does anyone care that my life is broken and does anyone have a solution of how I can be put back together? In other words, Jude says, when you talk about that, you have to be reminded of how you got mercy in your broken state. Jude is taking us back to realize that in our own brokenness and in our own facade of pretending that we had it all together, it was God's mercy and God's grace that repaired the brokenness of who we are even though we were in church. We were in church, but not at church. We were there physically, but we were not there mentally or emotionally. And Jude refers me to what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 3. To remind that mercy is not equated to the good works that we do in church. But mercy is, of course, the outpouring of God's favor, unmerited favor, that you could never earn in all of the good works that you do. Listen to what uh, Titus says. Titus 3 and verse 4 says, When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness. So I came to church every Sunday. I served in a ministry. I gave accordingly. And I stretched voluntarily. But that's not the reason why I am saved. That's not the reason why my life has been reversed, nor is it the reason why I feel the way that I feel. But Titus says, but according to his mercy and the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's what Jude says. Whatever you do, don't move Jesus out of the equation, but he has to stand as the center 
of who you are, the center of your joy, the center of your peace, the center of your power, the center of your progress, the center of your prosperity. Jesus, if he is not at the center, then you can count that as your own merit. But when you sit back and recognize all that you are and all that you have is really not due to the goodness of your own, but by mercy... Jude says there's some in the faith who are not as strong to recognize nor are they as strong to see the essence of Jesus. They need you and I to help them understand if it had not been for the Lord on our side, where would we be? We would be spinning, perhaps as many are, in spiritual immaturity, in spiritual imbalancedness, too many people in the church are fixated at the stage of spiritual immaturity. They stay there because there's nothing in them, as it appears, to drive them to want to know how do I get beyond the space or the place that I am in right now in my life. I just like perhaps many of you might say that if God leads us to assist someone, we might argue we don't have the time. We're busy trying to help ourselves develop. We're busy trying to help ourselves move forward. And Jude is trying to tell us not so. In fact, the only way you will grow is to reach back and help someone else who's struggling to grow so that both of you can grow together in the kingdom of God. So many are supposedly spiritually matured, but notice they remain infants, they remain children, they remain teenagers emotionally. And there is something to be said about our emotional imbalance, how the slightest thing sets us off, or how we're moved to a space where we don't know how to express our displeasure or our discomfort. In fact, Jude contends, and he says in that opening line of verse 22, that we ought to show mercy on some, particularly who are doubting, who are contending, how is it that God would permit such heresy or apostasy, as some say, to rise up in the church? But I am convinced that without the challenge of your faith, you would not know what it means to have an apologetic. And apologetics doesn't mean to be apologizing. It means to how do I defend what I believe. And you can't know that unless you know what's challenging your belief. And here we are. Jude is saying that I want you to understand that there are those who don't know how to defend their faith. And that those of us who understand how, we need to help those who are weak and doubting in the condition that they find themselves. But listen, we've got to always remember, we were once ourselves not knowing. But God illuminated through the study of the word to give us insight. This is why the Bible is so important to be a part of your daily regimen. You've got to commit yourself to the reading of the word of God so that God can visit you and speak to you and explain to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here Jude tells us that those who are spiritually immature are struggling with the faulty spirituality that results from a faulty theology. 
you got to know what you believe about God. It's got to be imprinted in your heart and in your mind. You've got to have a conviction. Listen, you've got to know if you believe that Jesus is the Savior, he's the Savior. That's got to be a conviction in your heart. If he's the healer, you've got to be convicted that he's the healer. If he's the, the storm calmer, you've got to believe that he will calm the storm. But there's got to be a conviction in your spirit in reference to who Christ is and most importantly, operative in your own life. And Jude says, when you have a faulty theology, you have a faulty spirituality. That means that it will not balance out according to scripture because when you have a strong theology, it forces you to go beneath the surface. So much so that when you listen to music, I like to listen to lyrics, and the contemporary music sort of lacks theology, but yet it is empowered with entertainment. So it makes me happy, makes me joyous, makes me rock, but when I read hymns, it is loaded with theology because it goes back to the foundation of the word of God on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the grounds are sinking sands. You hear that theology? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, but all of the grounds are sinking sand. Peter says that Christ is the chief cornerstone. In other words, you can have all of the other stones in the world, but without that cornerstone holding up the essence of who you are, all of the grounds are sinking sands. That's good theology. Listen to this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope, my aspiration and inspiration is tied into the shedding of the blood of Jesus at Calvary. I have a belief that that cross did something for me in the shedding of his blood as brutal and as ugly as it was, it was God's way of availing unto me power that stretches to all of humanity. In fact, Zechariah said it was God opening up a fountain in the house of David. In other words, he enables us to be able to dip into that fountain. There is a name I love to hear. I love to speak his word. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. See that theology? I centralize it on who it is, Christ. And that's what Jude says. You got to have a strong theology which gives birth to a strong spirituality. So he says, God says, I need you to show mercy to those because you've been shown mercy. But then he says, I need you also to work hard to save others no matter what it takes to save them. Look at verse 23. He says in verse 23, save others, snatching them from the fire, and save some with mercy, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now he starts to play on words. Save others. Soteriae or sozo, from which we get the word soteriology. We get the English derivative salvation. It means to save or to rescue. Listen to the assignment. 
we all have a divine assignment to be evangelistic in everything that we say and do. Listen to what he says. Saving souls is not left to the preaching of the preacher or by the preacher. But he says to this congregational life, save others. Go out and rescue them. Bring them to a spot where they can receive the message of the gospel right where they are. Back in my day when I started ministry, we had and I participated in what was called socialism. We don't do that much anymore, but we went out on Sunday evenings and we spoke to folk who were on the street corner and we passed out tracts. But most importantly, we stood there and shared the gospel. We did what Jesus commissioned us to do in Matthew 28. Go ye, go out and make disciples. Here, Jude is saying, get out of the four corners of your building and go out and save some folk. Take the message where they are because some folk won't come to church because they're not strong enough. And on top of that, we are quite judgmental. And being judgmental, they will not find the comfort that they need. Go back to verse 22, which is why he reminds us, show some mercy because you've been shown mercy. We used to have a gentleman who used to come in our church when I first started ministry, and he reaped with alcohol. And what was hilarious was, now that I think about it, when he'd come down the aisle, he would never sit in the back. But he would always come down and sit on the front row. But in his coming, there would be a trail of odor that would follow him all the way down the center aisle of the congregation. But you could see congregants, you know, frowning and turning their head and wondering, what is he doing in here? And the pastor made it clear, I know some of y'all are a little discomfort, but listen, He's in the right place at the right time and exactly where he needs to be because his life is broken and he needs to be saved, to be rescued and show some mercy because although you may not have came down the aisle smelling like something, you may have been doing something smelling like something and don't nobody know about it but you and Jesus. Show some mercy because you've been shown mercy. But take the gospel wherever they are. And this is what makes church interesting. Effective ministry and people who find churches quite liberating seem to specialize or at least make a priority in leaving out of the four walls. But going down to feed those who might be homeless to bring them some food, to bring them some clothing, to find a way to make sure that they have the necessities of life, to fight for them that they might have health care, to fight for them that they may have justice and protection, to find a way for those who are weak and cannot fight for themselves. But here is something interesting. Jude is not talking to those on the outside of the church. He's talking to folk on the inside of the church. Which means that everybody look pretty on Sunday ain't pretty on the inside. There's a suggestion by Jew that they are perhaps struggling, but most importantly, their life is broken is why they are crying out in a silent way, I need to be saved. 
And if that's not convincing enough, look at the next word that Jews plays with in verse 23. He says, save others, but snatching them, harpazo, that's the Greek word, snatching them from the fire. And you want to really make this personal? Think about this. Think about how God snatched you from the fire. I know we middle class folks, so we don't have that kind of testimony. Uh, but you think about those folks who may have came out of life of the drug culture. Or who had a bout with alcoholism. Or who came out of an abusive context. Or who came out of a context where their identity was denied. And listen to what Jude says. Jude says, snatch them from the fire. And there are those who are still in that context. Who are trafficked as human beings. Who need to know that there's somebody who care about me. I know that I'm not just in this world alone. Is there anyone who has any concern about what they're doing to me. Jude says, snatch them from the fire. And what is the fire? The fire there is a Greek term that he uses to suggest that it is not just burning to consume, but it's, it's almost the same word that Moses uses in the Exodus when he sees the bush. He sees it burning, but it's not consumed. And you got to wonder, what kind of fire is that? It's almost like a bondage. How about the people who are in bondage who can't get out? And they are dying to do so, but they cannot come to where we are. So we got to go to find them where they are. Now there are some who are called to the back streets of life where there is extreme high uh, volatile situations and yet there are those of us who may not be called to that level but we are called to a space where we can share to get someone out of the fire and can I bring it home closer we don't have to go very far it's right there in our family somebody's in the fire we know it you know how I know we know it because we say the same thing every time we say ain't they pitiful Lord have mercy. I'm praying for him though. Maybe we need to move beyond praying and find a way to liberate them. That they may see God in you. The hope of glory. Snatch them away. Jude says just think about the fire that God snatched you away from. There's something about when you put yourself in someone else's shoes, it gives you a different state of what mercy means. When you come to realize that that person who is crying for just a morsel of bread and you know what it means not to have bread because you've been in that state where you didn't have bread or you wondered how you would get bread, now you understand what a person means when they're homeless and needs a meal. It's almost as if, you know, you're kind of challenged to sort of wrestle with the reality of should I, should I not give that guy who's standing at the stoplight or the stop sign any money because I don't know what he's going to do with it. But here's my rationale. Well, if you give it to him, think of this way. Is it really going to hurt you? Is that dollar or five or 20 really going to hurt you? Yeah, but I don't know what they're going to do. I know. I don't know what they're going to do either. But watch this. I think about the many fives and twenties and tens that mercy 
made available to me when I didn't deserve it. Or I think about the times when someone gave when I didn't deserve it. Not only did I not ask for it, but I didn't even deserve it. If I did want to ask, I didn't deserve it. And yet it was given. Do you see what that means? That means that someone was willing to give to snatch me out of the fire of selfishness. So that I would come to realize how important it is, says Jude, to save it. But then he says, save some, snatch them out of the fire. But watch this. Have mercy on some with fear. Because there he suggests, be careful when you go out to minister because don't let yourself become so vulnerable that you condone what they're doing. See what I'm saying? So uh, although I'm going to go out, which is just an example, I'm going to go out and witness to the alcoholic, uh, and he's sitting there doing his drinking thing, uh, I'm not going to encourage him in his drinking that that's a good thing. I'm just not going to do that. But I'm going to let him know, you know what, that is actually probably a debilitation in your life. It's probably ruining your liver. It's probably affecting your lungs. It's bothering you mentally and emotionally. If you back away from that and drink a little more water and do a little bit more juice, your life could experience a different change. But at the same time, I'm going to love you where you are so you missed it that was your shout I'm gonna love you where you watch this not all of us come out of situations where we didn't have that kind of challenge and folk loved us but there were some people who were critical of us very critical in fact here is where we can go we can deal with this challenge watch this and then I'm almost done uh, we, we, one of the challenges of the church is to deal with how things are written because we have a struggle with trying to interpret what did the writer originally mean. For example, for years we struggled in, in the church as to whether or not women have a place in the pulpit because of really one verse in 1 Timothy 3. And that is when the writer says, if any man desires the office of a bishop, we stop there and recognize that the word man used in the text is not the word anthropos. Anthropos means male and female, just human creation. But Paul uses the word atnar, which happens to identify the male gender. That creates a problem because now scholars say, and some say, well, that means that Paul is saying no women has a part of ministry at all. That's not their space. Well, could it be also, watch this, or might be saying, I'm thinking of men in ministry, so if anybody desire, any man desires the office of a bishop, let him be. And then he goes on this characteristic. Does that really mean he excludes women from ministry? Okay, you're not feeling me. Let me go to this guy. So we have a problem with the word sexuality. So, you know, if we're talking hetero or are we talking homo? Okay? Now, hetero, we don't have a problem because we say that's opposite of. That's, that's clear. We also have a challenge with the word homo because we recognize same sex is a struggle in text. But hey, let's just admit it. If you embrace it, you're going to have to deal with Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. That means when God says created he, male and female, created he, you're going to have to deal with that somehow. I don't know how you're going to deal with it, but you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to also have to deal with the idea of Genesis 19 where there is a challenge where God judges because of the struggle that the Sodomites have in Sodom in same-sex situations. 
You may not want to accept it, but you got to deal with it. You're going to have also struggle with Romans chapter 1 because the idea of same sex disturbs the idea of natural affection. So you're going to go outside it. You, you may not want to deal with it, but you're going to have to deal with it. Now, here's the other issue. The challenge for people with homosexuality is it's a disturbance to procreation. So that's why it's a problem for some people because you can't procreate in the same sex in terms of the human construction. Now, my issue is those are theological issues that we have to work through. But in the meantime, do we negate loving the person? Do we negate showing mercy to the person? Do we negate embracing the person? And the answer is no. And Jude is trying to tell us, even though they may be a heresy, they may be a heretic, they may be out of the will of God, I still need for you to display the agape love of God to the human being who can be reassured that I may not agree with what you are doing, but I love you even though you are in a space that I think you need to be changed from. Do you feel what I'm saying? That's what Jude means right here when he says, love them, but give them some mercy with fear. In other words, don't condone where they are if it's contrary to the word of God, but love them through that challenge and that pain. And that's where we have fallen short in the church. We have become judgmental instead of embracing them that the way that they are. See, here's the interesting thing about me that I got to move on. When I'm going in for surgery, I went in for surgery a couple years ago, about, I don't know, about five, six, seven years ago. I, I didn't ask my surgeon, what's your sexual orientation? Do you smoke? Do you drink? Are you married? Are you single? What's your religious belief? I didn't ask him none of that. All I said was, doc, heal a brother. That's all I want you to do. And might I argue, Neither of any of you have ever asked your doctor any of them questions when it came down to surgery time. All you wanted was for him to do what he had to do or her with that scalpel and fix what was broke in you. Operative phrase, fix what was broke in you. And maybe Jude is saying all God wants us to do is be the instrument where he can fix what was broke in somebody. Love him with fear that he says, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What's so amazing about this is Jude, it sounds as if he's saying, and he, 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 he's sort of looking at what I'm looking at, folk trying to figure out what you're talking about. So Jude said, you know what? Forget it. Now unto him. Look at verse 25. That's what he said. He shifts his entire gears and says in verse 24, now unto him who is able to keep us. He says, let me move from uh, working on your conscience to now working on your celebration. So he says, now unto him who is able to keep you. Ah, that's where he moves us to joy. He's able to keep you. He wants to talk about the personal splendor of who Christ is. He's able to keep you. I'm going to stop right there. Listen, the question becomes, has God and can God and does God keep you. The Greek word he uses there for keep is a word that really simply means that not only does God hold us in the palm of his hand, but God also protects us and God watches out 
for us. He is able to keep you, watch this, from stumbling or from falling. And would we admit if it hadn't been for God's grace and mercy, we would have fallen and stumbled and made a mistake and made a mess of many different issues of our life. But yet God's mercy and grace keeps us on the right path. He says he's able to keep you from falling, from stumbling, and to make you stand before the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. He, he, he paints he paints an eschatological picture of what it means to go into heaven because he's arguing at this point that right now God is going to present me, Jesus is going to present me for the Father, listen, with great joy. So even if the enemy was there wondering why I'm there, uh, Jesus would step forward and point him to the redness of my presence. Okay, you're not getting me. So if you read Revelation chapter 12, there's a question posed by those in heaven. Who are these that are coming up out of the great tribulation? And one says, these are they who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. And, and I, I, am, I, am, I am one of those who's washed my robe in the blood of the lamb. It's been dipped in the blood of the lamb which gives me forgiveness. Thank God for his forgiveness of my issues and my sins and my downtroddenness. And, and the, the writer in the psalmist says, they are as far as the east is from the west. Are you not glad that God didn't remember your past stuff? But now I'm in dress rehearsal. I'm just getting ready for my new robe. I'm getting ready for my new garment getting ready for my new city. Everything I got here is constantly dying, has to be replaced or repaired. But, but when I exit into glory, new shoes. I got shoes. You got shoes. All of God's children got shoes. New robe. No longer stained by the garments garment stained by the issues of sin and darkness but my robe that is now white in the presence of who presence is my crown I'm going to be fitted for my crown my, my crown of righteousness says Paul and then I'm going to take my place around the rainbow circle throne where the angels cry out holy 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 Lord God almighty Early in the morning, my heart rises to thee. That, that's, that's the new rendition. That's my rendition in glory. My heart rises to thee because I'm in the presence of holy God. And then he says, not only unto him that can present me faultless before the throne, but he says to him, the only, the only, the only son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, the only the Gnostics says that there's more than one. The Gnostics argue that there can be others, and the Bible argues ain't but one. And next Sunday we'll celebrate, or next Monday we'll celebrate, we call him the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Wonderful Counselor, that, that baby born in the manger, the only Savior, the, the only one. 
the only Savior that comes to redeem. The only one such magnificence in his presence that he frightened Herod to the point where Herod had to, clue, had to slew all the little boys two years and older trying to get to the king. But he never could get to him because God in his glory moved them from Bethlehem up to Egypt and there he would make sure he's protected. Watch this. He is protected, rescued by the hand of God. And here we are. Here we are in this moment. In this moment now when Jews says, I got one more thing to tell you. And he says right there in verse 25, he is not only the only son of God, but to him is given Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever. This morning, I took time to tell him what it meant before creation, during creation, after. I'm just going to tell you, it means forever. And as I close this entire book of Jude, I just want to say something special. Here it is. Thank God for this small letter. It's, it's nothing but a small letter scribbled on a piece of paper but yet carries enough authority to remind us Jesus is the center of my joy. Uh, we, we are wrestling with 1 Corinthians 15 if Christ be not risen that our preaching is in vain. Our worship is in vain. Our praying is in vain. If Christ's death holds no merit, then we have nothing to look forward to in terms of eternity. But thanks be to God, preaching ain't in vain. Praying ain't in vain. Witnessing is not in vain. And my worship is not in vain. Because I believe by faith that there is a Savior. I believe by faith there is a heaven. I may not know if it's a reality, but my heart says it is. That's all I can tell you. Never been there. All I know is Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. Tell me how it looked, but that's all I can tell you. But I know enough to know that if I leave this earth tomorrow... That's where I'm going to be. One of these moments, it won't be long. You're going to look for me and I'll be gone. Going up yonder to be with my king. There forever. Watch this. I'm going to talk with the prince of peace. Gathered around the riverside to study war no more. But to listen to the proclamation of the king as he tells me, well done good and faithful servant. You won't think much of this little letter from Jude, but oh, it is so packed with a lot of spiritual truths. Jude says, one more thing I got to tell you, don't forget to keep Jesus at the center of your spirituality because that's your role model moving forward. Those of the church are open, somebody might be with us today that you are in this place without Christ as the Lord of your life. It is 